Great. Fuck, we're not eating anything. This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Today we aren't eating because our food is uh, very late, but we are talking Supreme Court. It's my favorite week of the year. Let's rock. So we ordered from that Sticks place. Remember that? Place? It's good. Pete and Sticks. I, wait, wait. I gave that place like a very high score and you were like, yeah, I'll give it a six. A six is good for, for like a delivery a kebab a place. A six is a D. It's 60%. Yeah, but that's my whole, that's my whole education. Okay. 60%. And I'm doing all right. Uh, you got to earn. I mean, I don't know. Like it's, I, I would give it like a seven or eight because it held up in the delivery. But, you know, to me, like anything above a seven or eight, we're talking like. Oh, like Batali's okay. restaurant or like oh. Lucali or like, really? you know, like crabs and French fries or something. Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I just don't think that kebab sticks have the ability to go past the six or seven period. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you're not here. I'm not here again. Um, I actually ate in Princeton. Where'd you eat? T- Tiger noodle. Nice. What'd you get? General Chow's chicken? General Chow's chicken, chicken lo mein. I do this rice. I do this thing where I purposely pronounce words really messed up and and my girlfriend gets so pissed about it. So I'll say General Chow's or General Chow's and I, I'll be dead serious and I'll be like, oh, I just want some General Chew's or like something <laughs> ridiculous and she gets so mad. But, you know, it's a, it's amazing to see people's reactions when you pronounce words terribly. And she doesn't realize that you're doing it on purpose. She she catches herself. She's like, "You're just doing it to piss me off. You're doing it to piss me off. I know you're saying it to piss. You're saying it like that to piss me off." Yeah. Um, how's Princeton? Princeton's good. Princeton's good. It's you know, it's beautiful in the summertime. It's like so nice. It's weird so doing chill. Skype with you. I'm like, I'm looking at you, and you look you look green. It, you, it's it. You know why? Because my the walls are green behind me. I mean, you look better green, to be honest. Yeah, really. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would I would try to figure this one out. If I were you. <laughs> All right, so here it is. The week of 4th of July, our Independence Day. That's right. Um, And we are doing nothing but satisfying your weird OCD obsession with the Supreme Court. Right. Um, And I I have no idea what we're about to get into, but this is what I, this is, this is how nice I am and and, and what you mean to me that I'm willing to do this. Yeah, I, well, I appreciate it. But I think, uh, to be honest, I think a lot of people will probably be interested don't you think? I mean, I think they will. We're going to find out. Also, we do have a um, special guest that we're going to loop do. in. Our special guest and our first guest. Our I mean, first guest ever. Big, yeah. Wow. It's our first guest. So we're going to go through a bunch of cases. Um, you know, there's there's a ton that, that, that came out. Um, but essentially, there's this trifecta of cases that came out of Texas that I want to go through right. this week. Um, and the first one... Our guest um, is an expert on. Should we call him? We should call him. Let's call him. Hold on, I'm going to call him. Hello? Hey, Tony, what's up? Zach Price, you're on. We have figured this out. You are on. You are our first ever, by the way, guest on No Politics at the Dinner Table. We're rolling. Okay, all right. Yeah, just just be loose. Do do you? I, I'm I'm delighted to I'm delighted to be a guest on the show. Are you? Do you feel honored that you're our first ever guest? <laughs> uh, it, it's amazing. Yeah, it's big pressure Honor here. Doesn't quite capture it. So, um, Zach is our first ever guest on uh, No Politics at the Dinner Table, and um, Zach, just so people you know listening know why it's appropriate that you are uh, a guest on the Supreme Court edition. Can you kind of just give us a quick uh, rundown of your credentials? Sure. So, um, first of all, I'm a lawyer. I now teach. I'm a law professor, and I teach constitutional law. Uh, but I did, uh, a few years back, in 2005, 2006, um, I had the tremendous opportunity to be a law clerk for a year for Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court. So, for that year... Um, Along with uh, three other young lawyers, I've worked with Justice Kennedy in his chambers on research and uh, pending cases and, and drafting opinions and that, and that sort of thing. Uh, a law clerk is sort of like an associate 
in a little law firm where the judge or the justice is the is a is the partner. So, um, uh, for that year, I got to have a kind of inside look at how the court works. Oof! And and after one year, you got out of there. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's typically a one-year position. I mean, it's quite demanding for that year, um, and you sort of do it for a year and then move on to other things. Nice, uh, Amit. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, I think um, Zach is uh, downplaying his resume a little bit. That's, <laughs> that's just one thing that he's done. Um, Zach went to Stanford. He went to Harvard Law. Graduated magna cum laude. Um, clerked at other levels for the federal judiciary as well, right, Zach? Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, two other judges. So right? humble. Uh, isn't, like, the U.S. Court of Appeals in, the, yeah, in so D.C.? Yeah, I, I had a, what, I mean, it, so, I mean, clerkships are a great thing to do on any level, but I was, I got to, as it happened, I clerked for a federal district judge, or a federal trial judge, and then for a Court of Appeals judge in Washington, D.C., and then, and then for Justice Kennedy. And then after that, I, I worked at a law firm for a little while, for a couple of years, and then spent three years at the uh, U.S. Justice Department um, in a really interesting office called the Office of Legal Counsel that uh, deals with uh, difficult legal and constitutional questions with the executive branch. In some ways, kind of like an internal court for the executive branch. Wow. Right. So and now, and now Obama, Obama administration lawyer, right? Which is great fun. Yeah. I mean, it, it has a, um, so it's, it's at the, the justice department. And so as opposed to the, the white, I mean, there's, there's the white house council, which is more kind of, so we'd often get questions from the white house council, but part of the ethos of the office is to have a kind of neutral outside look at things. And the office tries to, often respect its own precedent across administration. So there's, there's a kind of a tradition of executive branch uh, legal and constitutional interpretation that right. um, today happens mostly in, in, that, in that office. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, now that I'm hearing you say this, why you never called, like, were you never in a jam and, and undecided and you're like, I got to call Tony? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a little... I'm kind of slightly offended. Well, sadly, there are often confidentiality rules about legal advice. So yeah, I know, but we're family. Helpful we as your advice would have been, I, I could have, I could have lost my license for asking for it. Yeah, but that's, Tony has a don't ask, don't tell policy. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have snitched you out, buddy. I would have helped you out. So, Amit, let's get into this, man. Like, what are we talking about today? I want to, I want to talk. Okay. I want to get schooled. Okay. So, okay, so. Um, the case that I want to talk about with Zach, and I'm so psyched to do so, is the, I would mentioned that the three cases that we're going to talk about today all come out of Texas, but this one, the United States versus Texas, um, is essentially about Obama, uh, President Obama's executive order um, on immigration and basically how um, the Department of, of Homeland Security and other, and its various arms should or should not uh, enforce federal immigration policy, right? And a Texas federal judge um, basically blocked that executive order. And that went all the way to Supreme Court, and it was deadlocked four to four. And so that means it goes back down to the lower court ruling, which means, I guess for now, that that executive order is cannot be put into effect. Um, and Zach, I just wanted to get your take on you know, what do you think about the arguments for and against, you know, so particularly since it was a four, four outcome, it was sort of evenly split. Um, so just what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you think the arguments on, on to why Obama's right and within his powers and why he's wrong without, out of his powers? Yeah. So, so it's a really interesting, difficult case. It actually has a lot of, issues in it. Um, and it actually, interestingly, it's not necessarily over because what happened is, um, the district judge issued what's called a preliminary injunction, which means I'm going to stop, you know, stop what you're doing while we litigate the case. 
Um, and an aspect of the analysis of deciding whether to issue that sort of injunction is uh, your view, the likelihood of success on the merits. So, so basically, they litigated the merits of the of the issue, but nonetheless, it, it's it's still at this preliminary stage. So it's got affirmed. So it's not clear what's going to happen now, but it could actually go to final judgment and then get appealed again, and maybe the Supreme Court would have another chance to look at it. But could you explain for everybody what um, deciding all the merits means? Oh, yeah. So on the merits means, like, the merits is like the, the question that's being asked in the case, but often... In fact, there are a lot of issues in this case where you might never actually get to that question because you decide the court can't hear it or the Texas can't bring the lawsuit. Those would be ways of resolving it, not on the merits, as they say. The basic question in a case, so, you know, it deals with, with immigration, obviously. So the, 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 sub, the issue is, um, you know, involves this sort of heartbreaking question of what to do with uh, people who have been in the country sometimes for quite lengthy periods, sometimes came as uh, young children with their parents, but don't have legal immigration status. So they're undocumented. And so in theory, that means they could be deported at any time. And so, so interestingly, it's not, it's not actually a crime to be in the United States having come without um, to be here without immigration status, but it does mean that you can be deported. And, but as listeners are probably aware, the United States has a very large population of undocumented immigrants, estimated to be about 11 million. Um, and the government has nowhere near the capacity to deport them. So even with, um, the pace of deportations, the resources made available by Congress ramped up to some degree during the Obama administration, but the government says that the most it could do is 400,000 a year. Hmm. So that's a kind of context for the case. You've got this enormous discretion over how we're actually going to go about enforcing immigration laws because we can't possibly come close to deporting everybody who in theory could be, could be deported. And so uh, what the program that's at issue in the case is, um, so one thing, one way you handle a type of situation like this, and one reason the case is important, is that that's, that's a, that type of structure, I think, is really unfortunate in a lot of ways, and we can talk about that, but it's also something that exists across many areas of law. There are lots of areas of law where you have some type of prohibition, like environmental restrictions or labor laws or work safety standards or, you know, product safety standards, things where that you have some law that you could get in trouble for not following, but the government can't possibly come close to um, enforcing in every case. One thing that happens all the time and that no one really disputes the administration could do is you have some kind of priorities for what you're going to focus on. And they have that for immigration. Say, look, we're not going to, we can deport 400,000 people. We're going to use the resources we have to go after people we think are dangerous or criminals. We're not going to go after, you know, high school kids, people who are, who are otherwise completely law abiding. So that is, relatively uncontroversial. It's kind of an inevitability given the structure of immigration law and the way in which it is set up to have so much discretion over enforcement. So Zach, can I but just jump President in here? Obama, and, yeah, sure. Yeah. Can I, can I ask one question? So, so basically what you're saying is that given that there are these immigration laws and they can't possibly be totally enforced at all times, um, that, executive power can kind of decide, okay, we're going to kind of prioritize, right? We'll go after these and not those. And that's a sort of rational, normal, even response to the fact that you can't enforce all the laws all the time. Exactly. That, 
that so right? okay. that, that's the kind of background. But the, the question about that's in the Texas case is in two programs, uh, one of them is at issue in the, the Texas case, the administration has kind of tried to do something more than that. They've tried to give large categories of the undocumented immigrants something called deferred action. So one of the ways in which immigration law, we can't deport everybody, but going back to law from 1986, I think, in the Reagan administration, uh, it's illegal for employers to hire somebody as an employee who doesn't have work authorization. And the government has actually claimed for a long time that it can give work authorization to uh, people who get this deferred action uh, status. So instead of deferred action originally was kind of, you know, somebody came to the attention of immigration officials, they decided they're not, you know, we're going to let this person stay, so they give them deferred action. Um, There are some other examples of doing it programmatically in this way, but this this would be on a very large scale, roughly 4 million people potentially would be eligible to get out of those, out of the 11 million undocumented immigrants would get, could get this deferred action status where um, they get a kind of de facto reprieve for a period of years from being deported. And they also get potentially uh, authorization, authorization to work and certain other legal benefits like ability to participate in social security. So the argument Texas is making is this is no longer prosecutorial discretion. This is not enforcement discretion. You're changing the law. The law is that people who would benefit from this program are not here, in theory, shouldn't be here. And one of the ways that that gets enforced indirectly is that they can't work legally. And so the, the, the core of the argument over the authority for the program is that you can't, you don't, you need a statute to let you do this. You can't, this is no longer just, I can't pursue every case. So um, I'm pursuing some cases, not others. This is really changing the legal status of people uh, sort of de facto, even if they're not formally getting a green card or something like that. I've got a question. Johnny. Who, uh, yeah, sure. who, who pays, who, who's paying for all these lawyers to, to do all this battle? Sounds uh, expensive. The so, right. So the Texas, it's the um, Texas Solicitor General, who's their person who does litigate, important litigation in federal court and the U.S. Supreme Court, is bringing the case, and the U.S. Justice Department defends you know, federal programs when they're challenged in court. So it's basically Texas taxpayers against U.S. taxpayers. Sounds nice. Why, why do you think it's coming from Texas? Because, like, didn't, didn't um, Rick Perry have some, he had some arguments about, you know, if you're undocumented, you should still be able to go to, you know, UT system for in-state prices and stuff like that. So, you know, at whose direction is the Texas Solicitor General launching this case? At whose behest? I don't know 100%, but I think that it's the Texas Attorney General is the driving force. Um, and often in states, the Attorney General and the Governor are elected independently and don't necessarily agree on everything. You know, as you might imagine, it's, you know, more or less red states have signed up for the challenge. A lot of blue states haven't joined. And, and one argument the United States actually makes is that it's not, it's not an appropriate case for a court. It's kind of, it's really a, political dispute or Texas doesn't really have any sort of injuries. One thing you have to do to bring a case in federal court, you have to have what's called standing, which means you have to be injured in some way that sort of the courts don't want to hear made up cases. They want to hear something where somebody's hurt in a real way. And the big issue in the case is whether Texas really is injured in a way that, that counts under understanding doctrine. I think what's important to understand about the case for your listeners is, you know, the, the policy here is incredibly compelling. Um, 
and you know the law, the legal issues get pretty complicated. But the basic problem of having laws that can't be completely enforced is pervasive, and there are a lot of you know this. I'm you know very sympathetic to the beneficiaries of this program, but there are a lot of other areas where uh, the question is sort of how far can an executive official take prosecutorial discretion, giving people a kind of de facto guarantee that the law won't be applied to them. And so, you know, if you want to, it's important to kind of think about the reverse case. And so a big kind of parallel in some ways, more to marijuana perhaps than, than immigration is uh, gun control. There are a bunch of states that have laws that, that try to say that federal gun control law doesn't apply within our state. You can make guns that violate federal law and, you know, the federal government doesn't have authority to do this. And the, um, the Obama administration has, you know, issued threatening statements to say, you know, we'll prosecute anybody who tries to, tries to do this. They've litigated it, but that's the kind of situation where you might imagine a president on the other side saying, Hey, you know, you know, there are lots of criminal laws. I can't do everything. This is a low priority for me. So I'm going to kind of try and give people a kind of de facto guarantee that they, they can, if they're compliant with the state law, then I'm, will, the federal enforcement won't come after them. And so that's the kind of fear, this kind of structural concern in the background of the case is how far, what is, what obligation do presidents have when it comes to these laws that uh, you know, Congress passed, but they can't be completely enforced. How far can presidents go in giving a kind of guarantee that you're not going to be subject to enforcement? Um, it. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think this is really interesting, right? So, it's from what I'm getting from you, Zach, and from the little that I've read, um, it's kind of an issue about the rule of law itself um, that the rule of law is, you know, it's dependent on the force of law and the force of law is to an extent dependent on the perceived enforcement of the law, right? That, that people at least have to think that the law might be enforced in order to people, for people to hew to the law. Right. Um, so if, if, if you tell a whole category of people, by the way, you're cool, um, then there's no force of law at work. Is that, Kind of. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's exactly the, the, the question. So it's not like that. So it's different from something like, you know, think about big executive power questions in the last administration, like the torture memos. Like right. that's the executive branch itself violating a statute and claiming it has constitutional authority to do so. This isn't that, you know, direct a kind of rule of law conflict. But it's more of a concern about, you know, if what the rule of law means is that, you know, people are supposed to follow statutes, the acts of Congress, then doesn't that mean the executive branch has to at least kind of pretend to try and enforce them as best it can? So what's different about immigration or marijuana to some degree is you might say that that's policy-based non-enforcement. So it's not, I'm not, President Obama is not saying that uh, immigration law is unconstitutional. He's saying, you know, I don't like these immigration laws, so I'm going to find ways to shift the on-the-ground policy from the, from the statutory policy uh, oh, in the okay. way I use my enforcement discretion. Okay. So There's not that I don't think, not, not that I think they're unconstitutional, but I just don't like them. So to some degree, you know, this, ha- this is a routine part of our government, for better or worse, that presidents come in and they have to make these enforcement choices. They prioritize the things that seem to them to be most important. And, you know, um, and so really the question that the immigration case is sort of how far can you, can you take that and trying to, you know, is, there, is there a meaningful difference between that and sort of giving a kind of more definite promise to people that, that they're not going to be subject to enforcement? Let's hope not. I'd be screwed. <laughs> Amit, 
I want to hear your opinion on this. How would you have voted if you were on the Supreme Court? So yeah, you know what? Let's I'm get really into this. this. Enough with I, enough I, with I this. I read. I listen. Listen. I read um, parts of a, a a little piece called "Enforcement Discretion and Executive Duty." Um, Zach, you know that piece? I think you do. Um, I'm going to I'm going to quote for it right from right here. Um, executive non-enforcement authority, if unbounded, could substantially reorder the Constitution's separation of powers framework by permitting presidents to read laws, both old and new, out of the code for the duration of their presidencies, unrestricted enforcement discretion could provide presidents with a sort of second veto, an authority to remake the law on the ground without asking Congress to revise the law on the books. All right, so that's, by the way, from Zach Price, <laughs> an article that you wrote, right? Yeah. And I found that really compelling, you know, So at, because here's the thing, and Zach says this in his article, is that, you know, the programs, I, I just want to mention the names of the programs. DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. DAPA, Deferred Action for Parents of Americans in Lawful Permanent Residence. So this is like about like families, right? It's about families that might well be split apart by immigration raids and stuff like that. And it's basically, I think, a really humane, well-intended, like righteous, morally right policy. Um, and... The problem is if only Congress would pass something like this. And because the other side of it is that what happens when you have a president whose policy you don't agree with, but they get to interpret the law as they will and enforce the law as they will effectively. Right. So they get, basically they're, they're creating new laws by like not enforcing them. Right. So, um, that's scary to me. Right. So as much as I sympathize, with the intentions and I think it's right. Like, I don't think there should be these terrible raids on like little kids and people being stuck in detention centers for years on end on the border. Um, on the other hand, you know, we might have president Trump and do you want to have him to have this much discretion? Um, I don't, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, and so, one thing you know, about so, executive power generally is, Imagine a Venn diagram, right? They're the powers you want President Obama to have. And then they're the powers you would trust Donald Trump with. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and what, what's the overlap? <laughs> or, you know, hopefully Donald Trump is, is, you know, he's so far out beyond what, who could be trusted as president that, that the voters will not make him president. I've, I'm certainly desperately hoping that that's the case. But, you know, if I think about, you know, Mitt Romney or Ted Cruz or someone more, more plausible. For a lot of reasons, the, the presidency has become more and more powerful, more central to the government in a lot of important ways. People who aren't lawyers or don't think about this sort of thing probably think mostly about the Supreme Court being what, what determines how our constitutional system works. But a lot of important questions actually get decided in practice based on just what Congress and the president do. And in some ways, they have a kind of institutional advantage. They can do something. Um, it's often difficult for Congress to uh, push back because if they pass a law, the president will veto it. And then they need a supermajority to repass it. We've been kind of on a trajectory of one way or another, presidents getting more authority in various ways. And, you know, that's fine as long as reasonable people are holding the office. But, you know, this, this year has given us reason to be worried about whether that will always be the case. So do you, are you, Zach, do you think if there's a President Trump, are we in big, big trouble? Or do you think maybe he get in there and, you know, not be, not be so bad? I, I think President Donald Trump is a fundamental threat to our system of government. I think he, he shows no respect for really basic previously shared commitments. I mean, you notice like he never talks about the land of the free and, you know, the importance of Congress. It's all about him, about what he'll do. Presidents like Obama, you know, Bush, even more so often push the envelope. They do things that are, legally questionable, uh, but they, but they claim to be 
following the law, right? There's a kind of ethos of, you know, I'm, you know, right. Congress makes the law and I follow it, I execute it. I mean, I, I, I mean, Donald Trump could present the risk of someone who just, just doesn't care. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm the tribune of the people and, and my, my rule prevails. So I, I think Trump is, is incredibly dangerous. He could, I mean, it, you know, it's possible he'd just be a kind of, be so ineffective that he wouldn't be able to do much damage. Maybe Congress would, I mean, they could impeach him. They could fight back in ways they might, I mean, they're, they're, they're so, you know, in some ways the framers set up a system of separation of powers in hopes of having some protection against someone like Trump because right. we have, you know, two other branches that can hopefully we're staring a tyrant, but you know, I I prefer not to not to test it. You don't you don't have a test case, Zach? <laughs> Let's put this system to the test, baby. <laughs> right. right. Let's do a little stress test on the Constitution, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I know it's frightening. I mean, Ahmed thinks Ahmed thinks Trump's starting to you know fizzle out, and I this is a, a big point of. A disagreement for us. I think I, I think he's going to surge when he starts debating Hillary. I think he's going to. Uh, that's when we're going to see what happens. Well, I, you know, if I could, I'll make a. You know, I know you you've got the. You guys are Bernie folks, but I think it's high time for Bernie to face the music and and do what he can to stop Trump. Which means he's got to. You want him to team up. He's got. We need a full throated endorsement here. I mean, he's got to bring his people around. I mean, he's lost fair and square at this point. A lot of people are disappointed by that. Um, you know, one of the features of our, of, I mean, another thing that's a lot of stress in our system is we have a two-party system, and that always means that the people on the wings of the two parties are frustrated because when it comes time to the general election, the party moves away from them towards the middle. But, you know, we can't have Donald Trump. I mean, people have got to show up. And I think, you know, I think everyone understands that and it's going to happen, but I, I just wish Bernie would realize it's time to start doing his part. We're, we're, what are we, what are we, we're two weeks away, right? When's From fa- the convention? Yeah. Uh, we're about like three weeks away. Three weeks that. away. Yeah, it'll be, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Bernie's already said that he's going to vote back Hillary and will vote for Hillary. But he did, um, Ahmed. He said he won't yeah, endorse her. He, he's, he, yeah, he wasn't. He hasn't endorsed her, um, which I kind of get because you know I think people trot out like the Nader line a lot that you know don't be a Nader, Bernie. You know, but the difference between Bernie and Nader is that Bernie won twenty states, um, and so. The fact that he does, even though he did lose fair and square, as I put it, um, it's not a sort of resounding defeat. Um, and there's a lot of hesitation with, I mean, frankly, like I will, I know I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, it's a tragic admission um, for me um, <laughs> that, I mean, the, the, I never thought it would come to the day when I'm like, yes, I will vote for the Henry Kissinger protege um, as, as the best choice. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, I know it's, it's, I just find Hillary Clinton to be a very hard sell. That's, that's, that's my issue. So I kind of get as much as, yeah, I, I agree with the stop Trump thing. On the other hand, the choices for me is so unappealing. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's the, 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 I mean, that's one of the many crazy features about this election is, is that two candidates who, for whatever reason, many people find unappealing, but I, you know, I, I mean, I, I admire Hillary in a lot of ways. I mean, I, but in any event, I think it's time for the, for the Democrats to unify. When you shift to the general election, you've got to make sure you've got a platform that can, command broader appeal so i just I think it's think, crazy you know, he's, he's got you know he, they've given him stuff they've given, you know he's had a role in shaping the platform i think i think he's got a he's got a it's it's time to come to to make peace and and yeah become more like elizabeth warren and get out there and and get people fired up about what they need to do at this point. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's just funny that you know, that's what we, these are our two choices is that we got to, the mere fact that we need all, everyone to unite to beat Trump. This guy is like, uh, he's a joke. 
and he might win. Like that's how bad uh, the Democratic Party is right now is that we we actually are so our own party is so torn up that we're afraid to lose to an idiot like a, a guy who actually has no experience. He's sunk businesses. He he's an admitted dirtbag. <laughs> And like, and we're panicking. Like we might not beat that guy. That to me is is absolutely insane. I it's it's such a deep problem. It's incredibly depressing. It's depressing. Like I, mean, I I sort of naively thought that the United States was immune to this kind of <laughs> ethno nationalist type of right wing party. That I mean that's this is I mean Europe. This is the the has all right wing parties like this, and I feel like Trump has kind of entered that space in. United States, and it's 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 really dangerous. I f- I think it's important not just that he loses, but he needs to lose decisively enough that the Republican Party reconstitutes itself as some sort of broader coalition rather than you know the Trump base. But Zach, do you think uh, a crazy year? Do Do you think do you know anybody on the uh, Hillary campaign that would want to hire Amit and I? Because I can, I know how to beat Trump. I'm just letting you know I, I have the answers. I'm not going to well, tell the, you. What's, your, what's the anti-Trump strategy? Oh, well, I could. I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking for cash here. This isn't a freebie. <laughs> like, this isn't, I'm not, I'm not trying can, to. You're not just dishing this out. <laughs> I, I, I have the, Amit knows I have the, Amit and I talk about it off, off, off of uh, the podcast, and he knows that I've got, I've got the map to take him down. I've got a I got a question. So let me ask you this serious question. Judge Judy, what is your what is your view on Judge Judy to as a as a replacement for the Supreme Court for Scalia? Zach? Judge Judy? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> I know, tough one, right? I've I, you know, I would yeah. assume that she doesn't well, I don't know. <laughs> I would no. say that would probably be bad on a lot of levels, but, I, but I, 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 I have to say I don't know enough about her. To, I don't want to impugn her. her fair enough. She's, she's firm, but she's fair. I think fair. she was one of the first women to go to NYU Law School. She was a pioneer in that regard. There you go. What else we got, Ahmed? <laughs> first of all, Zach, let me just ask you. When I say that the phrase, Becky with the bad grades, what does that mean to you? <laughs> So I only know this because your wife told me, but I gather it's some kind of trending hashtag relating to the affirmative action case. Yes, Fisher versus UT Austin, exactly. Uh, Abby, Abigail Fisher, that's that's the hashtag on black Twitter. Um, Becky with the bad grades after she lost. Um, what do you think about that case? So for those of you who may not have followed it, this was yet again another um, challenge to using race as a factor amongst many um, in affirmative action programs at state universities. Um, there've been a bunch of others going back to like the seventies. Um, and this one went down four to three. What did you think about this case? You think it was just, well, I right? say embarrassingly, I've not read the, the opinion yet, but I think it's correct. I mean, I think that, the, the argument is that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which generally prohibits the government from treating people differently based on race, um, the, the argument is that that means just any time you're, you're considering race, so here the state university is considering race, among other factors, to admit students, and that violates the Equal Protection Clause. Um, I, I don't think that's persuasive for... A number of reasons. I mean, I think giving people a boost is different from, you know, discriminating against them. There are a lot of societal reasons to want diversity at at schools around the time the 14th Amendment was adopted. The government did a lot of race-conscious, beneficial things for uh, freed slaves. It's not clear that that kind of strict anti-classification view of equal protection even consistent with the original understanding of, of equal protection. 
So I yeah. think, I, I mean, I think this type of program is beneficial and the state should get some flexibility about uh, considering race to increase diversity at, at public universities. Okay. Tony, did you know about this case at all? Nope. Nope. Oh, man. This, this, yeah, this, give, me this the, girl, give me the Cliff's I, notes and I'll give you a major opinion. Go. Okay. So this, this girl apparently has been dreaming to go to UT Austin because her parents went there and this, that, and the other. And UT Austin has this program where any kid who's in high school in Texas, if they're in the top for 10% of their class, they automatically get into UT Austin, which is like the flag, flagship state school. Right. right. So most of the spots are taken there. And then, like, if you didn't make the first, that 10% cut, then you got to compete amongst all the other people, right? Right, right. Um, and so, basically, she didn't get in, right? She was a legacy. She didn't get in. Right. Uh, so, she ended up going to LSU. So, like, can you think about how bad the people at LSU feel, right? Because she right. brought a case for right. years. <laughs> like, oh, man, I had to go to LSU. Right. Um, but, um, essentially, oh. she said that because there was something like 50 people who got in um, ahead of her, right? Right. 46 of those were white. Right. Four of those were minorities. And she said one of the minority students took her spot. That was her argument. Took her spot? What do you mean took her spot? Did she have better exactly. grades? Exactly. I mean, you talk about like a sense of entitlement, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, um, but, but the notion that, I don't know, I just thought this was like the most like patently racist argument that, Somehow, what about the forty-six other white kids? They're fine, right? They're 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 good to get in. So she was implying um, that the the four black kids got in because they're black. Exactly. That 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 was the sole reason. Um, and yeah, so she lost, and she brought this case twice to the Supreme Court. Uh, they <laughs> sent it back down last year, um, and it went back up. Right. So. This is like I don't know. I come I, I find on. This, this is an easy mad, one, right? That's an easy one. But but yet it was. Guess what? It was split four to three. Which way did Clarence Thomas go? Yes. Ugh! I can't with this guy, <laughs> Zach. You can stay out of this one for your career, but man, but this yeah, so I mean, the, the conservative view has been, and and I mean Kennedy previously, it you know you know their context has been in the middle on this, but, but the, um, Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion a while back about, uh, primary school allocating students based on race, um, where the court struck it down and the, he had this, this kind of famous pithy line or said the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race, stop discriminating on the basis of race. So the, the, the idea is that that's Roberts, right? It, yeah, that was Roberts. That's Roberts, right? Their, yeah. Like their theory is like, look, the, the evil here is is thinking about people in racial terms. We just don't. We, we have to just get the government to just stop doing this. And so it's a very kind of strict rule type view of what equal protection means. That it violates equal protection anytime the government is thinking about you as a member of your race rather than as an individual. Right. And so the, the, what makes this case significant is people didn't quite know what Kennedy was going to do. I mean, he was the one who seemed most, you know, the potential swing vote, and he, he came down on the side of, of um, not being so strict about it by saying that, we, you know, you can do it to some degree the way they did here in this context. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've heard that, you know, that, that line that... Uh best way to stop discriminating on race, stop discriminating <laughs> race. It's, I mean, it's like in the legal universe, it sounds perfect, right? It makes all the sense in the world, except there's, then there's reality where people take race into account all the time. Um, and right. Well, I so, think that's a way to think about it or is sort of when you have a social reality where people think about race, should the government be nonetheless be, sort of completely blind to it and everything it does. Or if the government is, as in this case, doing something uh, benign, as it's called, rather than, you know, discriminatory, right. trying in some sense to redress past discrimination, you know, can the government take account of the social reality um, in, in these ways? And so importantly, like going, there's actually been a series of these affirmative action cases 
going back to I think the seventies, where there's always been the Baki case, um, right? A Maki. Yeah, so Baki. So there was also there. It was Justice Powell, who was kind of the Justice Kennedy of, right. of that era, and the way they've kind of, and Justice O'Connor also, the way they've tried to handle this is to say like, look, you can, we're not going to let you have like a like a quota or something really mechanical right. that just reduces people to racial. Um, it just reduces them to their race, but we'll let you, if it's part of a kind of holistic view of the person, then, then, then that's okay. Um, you know, the know, interesting so thing that I find about all the case findings up till even this one <laughs> is that you can't like kind of use affirmative action as a tool for social justice, right? That that's not a legitimate use of affirmative action, particularly like, certainly in universities, right? Um, like the the O'Connor, you know, she argued that essentially it's a you know a, what a, what is the term like a compelling state interest to have these programs, uh, particularly with the Michigan Law School because law schools produce leaders, and given the diversity of America and the sort of globalization, you want a diverse set of leaders, uh, and diversity in the classroom is a good thing for educational institutions. So it's not so much social justice, they were wrong in the past, but rather it's good for classroom practice now. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. So, I don't know how much you might get into this, but the, like the, the modern equal protection doctrine, which basically means like the Constitution says, you know, state can't deny equal protection of the laws. How, how do we apply that in to decide actual cases? You know, what kind of operative meaning is that going to have? And one thing the court says, they say, if you're thinking about, if you're dividing people in terms of race, if you're making a classification based on race, then it has to satisfy what they call strict scrutiny, which means you have to have a compelling purpose, a really important purpose, and it has to be um, narrowly tailored to that purpose. So it has to be like, fit that purpose exactly, not be right, have a lot of over or under inclusiveness. And so O'Connor um, had recognized classroom diversity as a compelling interest and then said that this kind of holistic um, inquiry is, is sufficiently narrowly tailored to advancing that purpose. But that's right. The court has never, in, the, in this context, I don't think, recognized just remedying past discrimination as a compelling purpose. Right. Well, I am... Uh... <clears throat> I'm on the side of the university in this one. I think it's I think it's a no brainer. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, it's a no brainer. I mean, until yeah. I mean, you know, it hasn't been long enough since uh, you know people have been equal in this country to, to just for everybody to just be looked at as people. Like we we still have a lot of work. We still have a lot of work to do uh, to make sure that we can eventually get to where people want to go now, but we're not there yet. You know, I mean, I think w there's still a lot of racism in this country that has been bred from generation to generation. And until a lot of these old racists die and stop spreading it to their kids and grandkids, we got to keep policies like this around. Uh, and that is my ruling. Nice. O'Connor said 25 years. 25? Right, like, I was thinking more like 200. It, yes. Well, I mean, that, I think, yeah, it was a little, a little rosy. Ago, right? uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was like in 2003 or something like that. Yeah, well, he's, um, he's an idiot. Um, what, I, what, I, what I find just crazy about the whole affirmative action thing um, is that affirmative action kind of just got started in the 60s. And already by 78, it was being challenged. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, like, just a few years after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, you know, people are actually allowed to vote. Um, it basically lasts a decade, and then it's challenged. Right. right. So, I, it's I think that says something right there. I don't know. Um, okay, last case. No, last case. I don't Hold, think we can do it. Health. Ahmed, I Come think on, we're out man. of time. Are yeah, we really? oh I think God. we. I think it's time to do some. Uh, some rapid fire and we got to get out. I mean, you're a psychopath. Oh we, we've never gone over 43 minutes and Dude, now we're an hour 15 case. and you're in there like, let's do 10 more cases. We got to roll, brother. <laughs> you're, you're an addict. Like one more hit. Give me one more hit. One more beer. Jesus. All right. All right. Zach's all right, got a family fine, waiting fine. there. 
I mean, I know it's unbelievable. I know, I know. Zach, I got a serious question okay. for you. You you get um, wrongly you, you get falsely accused of murder, and they only let me or Amit be your legal counsel. Who are you picking? <laughs> you got it. No no hard feelings. You got to just you got to you got to pick. And and hold on, uh, hold on, hold on. Let me preface this with you. You know, yeah, whoever you pick. No, 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 no. You guys would be a great team. Yeah, but we're not, we're not, we're not doing that. You're picking one yeah, or the other. Yeah, you get one or the other. And you get to like kind of help that person out with facts and things like that. But who do you want up there, like trying to win the jury over? Uh, it's a tough call. I'm shocked that it's a tough call. I, th- I Tony, I think you might have to have the jury charisma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might have to go with Tony. I'm that one. That's Zach, all. No hard feelings. I would pick Tony too. Yeah, I would pick me too. <laughs> I'd what? probably pick Tony over me. No, no. <laughs> all right, Ahmed. What other? Right, Zach. Who, p- prediction? Uh, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. Who's going to be our next president? Hillary Clinton. What else we got? What else I'm, we got, Ahmed? I'm, I'm definitely saying Hillary Clinton. Um, I know you're. You think it's a toss-up, right? Well, no, I think she's going to be the president if she doesn't get indicted. Oh, uh, okay. But you think she's going to get indicted? Well, I didn't, I'm not 100%. That's a, that's a 65% chance. Okay. Okay. Come on. We're not putting this um, in stone. So in terms of looking ahead, um, I think the big news right now is the news coming out of Europe. Um, obviously, uh, the crumbling of Europe, maybe. Um, we'll see what... The Brexit thing has, you know, the, the sort of ramifications of this. One major thing, major development is that one of the biggest cheerleaders for Brexit, Boris Johnson, has now said that he does not want to be the successor to David Cameron for the Conservative Party. No, he doesn't want to uh, deal with that bullshit. So can you? I mean, can you imagine though uh, the person or one of the people who was spearheading the actual Brexit now that it's happened? might perhaps realize um <laughs> i think it would have been cool if he did a press conference and was like guys i was it, joking from afar it's the craziest thing like these guys were all you know like literally the day after the vote i mean this bus that said you know we're paying what, 350 million pounds yeah year. and then, like the next day like one of the leaders <laughs> like uh, i didn't say that <laughs> yeah no he said that was a mistake it was a mistake yeah yeah. Oh so I would God. just say, what what other mistakes are going to come out? No, out of Britain right now. That's that's what I'd be looking. For yeah, right but the now. more the more the the as time passes, I'm already used to the Brexit. I'm 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 over it. We're good. <laughs> I'm already used to it. Time, time passes. It's been like a week. Yeah, time heals all wounds. I'm already healed. I'm over it. <laughs> okay. All right, Zach. Okay. Thank you so much for being our first guest ever. Uh, I, if anything, realize how ignorant I am. Uh, with the way our government works, I know nothing. I literally know nothing. Uh, but I uh, will still give you good opinions, knowing nothing. Um, well, thanks very much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Of course, we'll have yeah, you back on too. Uh, I'm sorry if Amit bored you to death, but uh, we'll get you back. Yeah, and you yeah, and I yeah. can do a little more arguing. This is no politics at the dinner table. Produced by Jeep Beta Roy. We give a shout out to all of our boys and girls in the military who listen to us. Special thanks to Zach Price, and uh, we will be back after the 4th. All right. See you next time.